Racism is a national security issue. When we talk about other countries, we talk about countries in Africa, when we talk about countries in Eastern Europe, and we talk about ethnic conflict and how ethnic conflict prevents us, that's what's happening here. From the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Jason Johnson, and you're listening to What's In It For Us. So, hello, Dr. Johnson. We got big things to talk about today. First things first, the Electoral College has been certified. Joseph R. Biden will be the 46th president of the United States of America. 306 Electoral College votes and Mitch McConnell has finally recognized it from the Senate floor. The Proud Boys have been marching in Washington, D.C. Not a peep from your president, Jason. Not a peep. Swastika flags, Blue Lives Matter flags, burning Black Lives Matter signs and flags off churches. And looks like they're here to stay. And lastly, and sadly, COVID has killed almost 300,000 Americans to date. And it doesn't look like things are slowing down. What say you, Dr. Jason Johnson? Well, first off, I'm amazed that Mitch McConnell finally congratulated Joe Biden on winning, but he did it after Vladimir Putin. So he was clearly waiting for a sign from his boss. As far as the Proud Boys in D.C., I love how these guys managed to march around the city and they're so like Forever 21 alt-right costumes and no one ever holds them accountable. But I'm less worried about them than I am the cops who sat idly by as they committed this level of damage. We see you, we know you, and those neighborhoods now have no reason to trust you. And look, 300,000 Americans have died from COVID. We will hit 400,000 possibly before Joe Biden even takes office. This is a war. And I hope, I hope this incoming administration takes it that seriously. So that being said, we have to keep asking the question. What's in it for us? All right, Jason. So before we get started, I want to talk about something that came up on our timeline this week, which was there was a study that came out that said Black folks actually give more than any other group in the nation, 25% more than white people and other groups. And we are not known to be at the top of the wealth gap. We know mm-hmm. that there are great inequities that exist within the Black community. When I read the report, I was absolutely not surprised, not one bit. And as I tweeted that out, so many Black people agreed with me. Yeah. They talked about coming from families, either families that had made it, who definitely gave back and had a culture of giving back, or families that either had humble beginnings or are still in the grips of the inequitable financial situation that we find ourselves in as Black people in this country. Yet and still, we give back to our churches. We give to social organizations. We give to community groups. We give to our neighbor because if we only have an orange, we'll split the orange in half and give it to someone who has less. So it's like this culture of Black people where no matter what we have, we are always cognizant. There's probably somebody out there that has less than us and we're willing to give back. I'm shocked that so many people are surprised that Black people have these large hearts, especially since there's this reputation of us like not tipping and being stingy. Well, see, Dr. Greer, you came from an orange family. I came from a Tangelo family. So it's a little (laughs) harder to cut that in half and share with you regular (laughs) folks. So here's the thing that really sort of entertains me about this particular story. Number one, like you, Dr. Greer, it doesn't surprise me at all. But number two, it always flies in the face. This is stuff that drives me nuts. We give 25% more than white people who have a lot more wealth, but all the prosperity ministers have been telling us that we waste our money. And all the Jay-Z's of the world have told us that we don't know how to manage our money properly. All this brought me in mind of another article that sociologists have known about for years, but it came about five or six years ago that showed that single Black fathers spend more time with their kids than any other group of people. Every single GD stereotype about Black pathology with money and Black pathology with parenting is always proven to be untrue. Like, not kind of true in certain circumstances, just completely untrue. How the hell can we have a reputation for being bad tippers when 
collectively as a community that is consistently locked out of the wealth of this country. We give more to fund local, national, and federal organizations than anybody else. It's a water is wet story, but it's also indicative of how pervasive the myths and the racist bigotry is about how black people spend money and how we operate in this body politic. Yeah, well, the myths about black people are basically as credible as the razor blade and the apple on Halloween. Hey, that happened. Right, like everyone talks about it, but ain't nobody ever seen that apple. We have had black-led organizations and institutions that have lasted over 100 years, not for free, right. not because white people were giving money, not because the government was giving money. It's because we invested in our own organizations. We are the ones who, you know, belong to churches that are over 100 some odd years old, founded right after Reconstruction. We are the ones who started organizations and sustained these organizations, large and small without federal money. So this idea that we don't give back to our own, that's also what makes me so enraged. Right. Because Black people don't call it philanthropy, but it is philanthropy. You know, in graduate school, I started calling myself a philanthropist. I was making $15,000, <laughs> right, a year, and my rent was $750, but... You were a philanthropist, Right. <laughs> but the little bit that I had, I tried to give. And, you know, I have that whole idea of I want to invest in the political system that I want to see. So I will give a candidate $5, $10, whatever I could afford when I was in graduate school. Now I'm able to give a teeny bit more to candidates, not necessarily just in New York, but across the country. Because I want to see a Black female governor of Georgia. I want to see the first Black woman go to Congress from the state of Missouri or the state of Massachusetts. These things are important to me. So this idea of Black people as investors in their own communities, as philanthropists, has to become the narrative. Because I think we focus too much on the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts of the world. And we don't look at the little Black grandmothers that Obama told us. He was getting these three dollar checks and these five dollar checks from black women supporting him. That has to do with the fundamental flaw of the American project, that we're told that generosity is supposed to come from the rich and that poverty is out of necessity or it's a moral obligation. And it's the bourgeois noblesse that have these things to do. It's the Mitt Romney's of the world. It's the you've got to have Oprah level wealth before the money that you give ends up making a difference. Which I fundamentally disagreed with. That's why I started calling myself a philanthropist. Right. Because I was right. like, if I start waiting until I have Oprah level money, I may never give a dime. Yeah, I'm never going to give a dime to anybody. As a matter of fact, by the time I have Oprah level money, I forgot what money is because it's just what I desire on a given day. And I just say, I want this. And it magically <laughs> appears with a robot. You're like, who are these black people? They need to work harder. <laughs> That's what's always so galling. And like I said, I'm raised in a church. I don't have any overall criticism of Christianity, but these prosperity ministers who are always like, and the way you give your money and blah, 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 we got to learn how to invest. It's like, bro, the only reason your church works is because people give money to it. How can you yell at Trickle down prayer is what they're investing in as the pastor drives around in a Bugatti or and has- voodoo economics, as George Bush called it, although that it's probably a bit anti-Christian and a bit racist now that I think about it. What I think is really important, especially in this COVID and soon to be post-COVID world, where there are going to be a lot of philanthropists mm -hmm. who are stepping in to insert themselves in a way that the state cannot or will not. But the reason why we even get to the other side is because you have local people who have been buying groceries for their neighbors, right. putting that money, that $5, $10 into that collective pot so that people can pay their rent and make it to a post-COVID. America. Listen, I've gone to white private schools my entire life, but I have seen time and time again when it came time for lunch and somebody didn't have money. My parents did well for themselves, but I was by far one of the poorest kids in my school. Mm -hmm. And I was the one who was like, oh, Jason, let me spot you. You can't go without having lunch. Or if I didn't have the cash on me, then it's like, oh, well, we'll just split my lunch today and it's no big thing. And I could sit there and see my friends whose parents could buy and sell the school six times. And it's like, oh, I don't have any money. And I told my mom this. I remember going home and saying, 
saying, like, I'm so frustrated that the rich kids just don't ever seem to share. And my mother straight up, straight face, I'm 12 years old. She's like, sweetie, that's how the rich stay rich. You have the whole moral component. So there's a story that actually goes along with this. I think it's Wisconsin. I saw it on my timeline last week because they did a joke about it on SNL where it was like a Dairy Queen drive-through and 900 people paid for the meal for the person behind them. Somebody started the, I'm going to do a good deed. Yes. And 900 people. I used and they, to do that with the tolls right, right. in Massachusetts. Exactly. You pay the tolls for 900 people. And it was fun. First off, that a Dairy Queen had 900 people go through it in like a day, which is insane to me. Have you not been to where Dairy Queen is popping? Because that is the local spot. I have not been to a Dairy Queen like that. I've been to like a Ruby Tuesdays in the hood back in the day <laughs> where it turns into Wait, a club. No, it's fancy like Bennigan's. <laughs> exactly. Woo, Bennigan's back in the day. At 5.59 p.m. on Thursday, Ruby Tuesdays is the club. That's pretty much how it starts. First, they were joking about the fact, who was that 900 person who was like, y'all, I'm good. F y'all. <laughs> like, I got my deuces. I literally had this whole philosophy when I used to live in Massachusetts and this is before Easy Pass. So mm. that just lets you know how old we are. It was a 50 cent toll on 90. And so I would give a dollar and say, pay for the person behind me. And I had this whole philosophy on how I was hoping that it was, you know. <laughs> Dr. Greer wanted to create a viral moment. I get it. I get it. I'm 19 years old. The government still gets their money, but everyone feels good. You've done your duty. You technically have paid, but you feel good about it because you're paying for the person behind you. And all it takes is that one 50 cent investment from me who kicked it off. And then everyone benefits. It's funny when you talk about sort of giving, and this goes into the individual giving because of a lot of the public work I do. I haven't given a lot of money because biases and people look up your background if you're doing analysis, et cetera, et cetera. I've had people try and look up my background and look at where I've spent money and, and everything else like that. But I also think it's kind of interesting because that goes even to that individual thing. And you talk about what your mother said about that's how rich people say rich. And I remember walking through the streets with a friend of mine in Atlanta, this is years ago, somebody homeless. And I know you know where this is going. So a homeless person asked for money. And I'm like, oh, I should give them money. My friend was like, nah, don't give them any money. I'm like, why is this real? I got cash, blah, blah, blah. When we used to carry cash pre-pandemic. Right. And you do know I go to the ATM every month to get petty cash. And everyone's like, are you 95 years old? You are a 95 year old. Do you still go to the post office, Dr. Greer? I sure do. do you send and handwritten pre-COVID, letters? pre-COVID, I knew all their names and I bring <laughs> them gifts calligraphy? for my Dr. Greer probably remembers phone numbers. And I also write like five letters a week. So there. Makes no <laughs> That's sense. That's why I'm always at the post office. I wouldn't even use Postmates. Anyway, point is, my friend is like, don't give that person money. So we walk by, I'm like, why? And she's like, because they're white. And she fundamentally believed, as her mother had told her, you don't yep. need to give white homeless people nope. money. And I was like, Never. no, that's kind of crazy racist. This person nope. is obviously suffering. But she was fundamentally against giving people money on the streets anyway. She's like, oh, you should give it to an organization, blah, blah, blah. But she felt like the wages of whiteness were so high that even a white homeless person yes. doesn't deserve charity. And I was like, I can't do that. Give her my number because we're clearly kindred spirits. White people don't give to black people. So if I am giving, I'm giving to black people. I give to organizations, but I do give to individuals. I had a friend who was like, they're going to buy drugs. I was like, you buy drugs. <laughs> so let them buy drugs. They're going to buy liquor. It's like, okay, good for them. Buy liquor. But I'm a firm believer of donating to black homeless people for sure. There was a guy who literally I ran into yesterday who was asking for my, I don't carry cash. It's been yeah. so long since I've had cash in my pocket. Now, mind you, I'm going to be very impressed one day when the highly innovative homeless person comes up to me with like a card reader. It's like, you know what? I got you. New York homeless people now have cash app at the subway. Oh, so. Are you serious? Yeah. It's like, here's my cash app. Here's my Venmo. So there we go. So before we move on, thank you so much. Let's keep watching that timeline, Jason, and carry cash on you. You just need cash. You never know when your phone goes down. You know you, famous for not charging your phone. I, you know what? I don't need this violence. OK, 
Okay, so the Electoral College has finally certified Joseph R. Biden as the 46th president or president-elect of the United States officially. We saw various famous folks go to their state houses, make a little speech, and cast their state's electoral ballots for Joe Biden, the winner for the states that he won. So some of you may have seen Stacey Abrams on the floor of the Georgia State House, former minority leader, give a beautiful speech, and then cast the 16 electoral college votes. Hillary Clinton was on deck Mm -hmm. for New York casting those votes. She's an elector as a former U.S. senator from the state of New York. It was a big day for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the Democrats. And your boy Mitch McConnell finally, begrudgingly, has said on the floor of the Senate that apparently, he used the word apparently, 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 the Electoral College votes are in, they have been counted, and Joe Biden is president-elect. So that means your boy, Donald J. Trump, stays taking an L. He took an L with suing all the courts. He's one for 50, I believe. That's where we are right now. Yes. The Supreme Court said, you know what? I'm not even going to grade your paper. It's just an L. These musings in the title are so ridiculous, we're not even going to look at it. They took a big sticker with a frowny face and put it, and then just sent it back to him. And guess what? It's unanimous. We can't even debate the five, four, six, three. It's like, no, 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 no. Even the three people who you gave a job to for life and basically said out loud, you do as I say, yeah, dude, but you're so bootleg, like I can't even. And so we've got the Supreme Court that's like, nah. We got the courts, we're like, hell nah. And then the Electoral College is like, we're an institution, we stand, and it's 306, dude. And the magic number was 270. It's not even 2000, the year 2000 with Bush v. Gore, where it was like 271. George Bush barely made it across the finish line as he was wont to do in his life. Yes. Donald Trump in 2016, you got 306 and you called a landslide. So now Joe Biden gets 306 electoral college votes in 2020. And you're saying that it's stolen and it's theft. And you just had, we'll get to the rally in a second. So you've already said, like millions of other Americans, you don't like the electoral college. It's antiquated. It's time to go. But let's just talk about this moment we're in. How are you feeling? First of all, now that the ballots are cast, puts us one step closer to January 20th. We know we got a lot of life to live in between now and January 20th. And then tell us some of your rationale behind dismantling the electoral So the first thing, Dr. Greer, is the court rulings that we've seen, and there's a lot of really good articles about whether or not this is good, these number of lawsuits, what they've meant. There is a point at which you can see the level of exhaustion in a judge. You and I remember like the People's Court, Judge Judy, and you could tell by that third case when they just wanted to go. They're like, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. (laughs) Wrap it up, B. Wrap it up. And it would all be the Black Bayless like, she mad now. (laughs) She was so done. Like they just did not care. You can tell because these judges, they saw these cases coming. Mm -hmm. At some point, they started responding with just poop emojis. I'm serious. I don't think they were even writing rulings. They were just sending a poop emoji and saying, go away, or just right. sending the gif that says, I'm on lunch break. <laughs> I'm on lunch break. Be back when you're not here. That's essentially what their answer was every it's time. It's like the 39th of February or something oh, right, like that. Right, exactly. I will be back at 28th o'clock on the 54th of November-ary when Susan <laughs> did. It was so clear to everybody who thought this is so ridiculous. But here's my thing, Dr. Greer. Dangerous precedent it sets, though, because yeah, not everybody's going to be as incompetent as this man. It's what I say about Joe Biden. I was like, Joe Biden has about two years because really it's about the midterms in 2022. Incoming presidents oftentimes lose in the midterms. They've only yes. got a 12 seat lead in the House. You really can't afford to blow this. He's got about two years to fix this because the next Donald Trump might not be incompetent. And then you got a whole issue going on. And by the way, and I'm going to take this back to the Electoral College, please now stop, cut, weep, whistle, whatever, throw the flag. Anybody out there who thinks for one second that Joe Biden, if he is 
upright and ambulatory, is not running for re-election in 2024 is an idiot. All these people out there who are like, what's going to happen in 2024 is going to be common. Ain't nobody stepping down from the presidency. You have to pry people out of At this 82, job. 82, though? I mean, come on, Jason. Have you met white male politicians? I've met a white man before. <laughs> I'm making gender race special. This man has run for president three times. He yeah. finally got in. He ain't leaving. I don't care if they have to prop him up with vibranium and four-leaf clover injections. Instead of weekend at Bernie's, it's going to be weekend, weekend at, at Bernie's. Harris can be like, hello, I'm Joe Biden, malarkey, right? Besides the fact that I don't think she can win. Anyway, my point of saying all For a host of reasons that we can talk about on and off this podcast. Exactly. Still trying to be friendly to everybody, just saying that <laughs> they're going to have in 2024. But anyway, so the reason I have the real fundamental issue with the Electoral College, and it's not the historical stuff and racism and everything else like that. I love when people are like, it's racist. I was like, guess what? Every single institution and policy yeah. in this country is racist. That, to me, that argument doesn't hold. Hello, it's called the United States of America. What isn't? <laughs> housing, the way school is funded, all of this stuff. The fact that we have a first-past-the-foe system instead of a parliamentary system, there's a million different reasons. Hey, guess what? The fact that I'm an American as a Black person. Yeah. Hey, guess what? That's racist. Yeah, yeah that's racist. You know why? Because like, I wasn't didn't voluntary. Back my it surely wasn't. Guess what? There, how many voluntary immigrants are in this country? One group. Quite Everybody else yeah, is like, yeah. ooh, this seems interesting. Right. It's like, no. Or we're dragged here. Or like, had somebody rename you as you like woke up, right. you know, one morning right. after breakfast. The closest group to us is the Native Americans, of which there were thousands of tribes. Right. And they're like, yeah, well, you were dragged here. Guess what? I was kicked off the land that you were dragged to. So And being called Native in and of itself, it's like, I was born here. It's yeah. my stuff. Why do Hi. I have to have a name? I'm Iroquois. I'm Shoshone. <laughs> right. I'm Tohino. Algonquin. Algonquin. Exactly. Iroquois. This is Dr. Greer trying to flex on that education she was talking about beforehand with her little private school thing. I'm pulling out all the stops from my fourth grade. But I also live in the state of New York. When you think about every single name in New York to let you know, remind you, it's like, hey, we are on stolen land. But let's get back on track because we only have a few minutes left for each other. I will also say this. As somebody who was in the Midwest, that seems to be like the only part in the country where they actually teach children about the American Indian nations that existed here beforehand. Other than that, it's just like, oh, we're going to go to Cahokia Mounds in, in Nebraska. Anyway, so my fundamental thing is just a strategic thing when it comes to the Electoral College. What we've got now is the Electoral College is even more problematic when you mix it with consistent voter suppression that we've seen. We had like a 30-year window where things got slightly better and then it mm -hmm. went back to hell pretty much from 2012 on because you had a racist sort of opposition party decide that they can't bear the idea of another black person or one day a woman getting into office. And so the idea that you can basically just rig the system and we're supposed to be a country that nominally represents a majority of the population, I don't think it works anymore. Now, no system is perfect. If you get rid of the Electoral College, it's not going to magically mean that voter suppression ends. If you get rid of the Electoral College, I've heard some people make the argument, well, if we get rid of the Electoral College, then they'll have to campaign anywhere. No, they won't. They'll campaign in 10 major cities, right? 11, <laughs> actually. I've done the math. I have a TED-Ed video about it. Like, yeah. I list the 11 that you need. Yeah. Here's my issue, Jason. What to me is more pressing mm -hmm. than abolishing the Electoral College is reinstating all full benefits of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Well, yeah. That, to me, is more important because in our modern presidential history, the Electoral College has actually given the results that it was intended to give. I don't count 2000 as a failure of the Electoral College because that was theft, right? Yeah. That was theft yeah. and we that don't call just, it that. Yeah. It's like, listen, I'm running for office. My sister just happens to be the governor of the state I lost and all of a sudden I happen to have to go to the Supreme Court of the bench my daddy stack and then right. magically I'm president. That was just grift and we didn't call it that. We didn't deal with that. And so now we have these repercussions. 2000 to me doesn't count. That's like popular vote and the Electoral College vote didn't match. But that's an asterisk. That's like yeah. a Bush family. Like, listen, we're third generation. Prescott was senator in Connecticut. Like, here we are. My issue is 2016, it did not hold. If we start to see that consistently, then I think we have a conversation. But honestly, until I have more than an N of one, I'm actually not interested in throwing 
it out. And I know that Black people are huddled in cities, but here we are. So final thought, and then we'll move on to your boys. At its core, the system is supposed to reflect the majority will of the population. And quite frankly, the idea, I think of it sort of in a sports analogy, where you can win the game either by scoring more points or by holding the ball longer. No, it's whoever scores the most points. And I think this will happen again. It could have happened again this year if we didn't have mail-in voting. I'm about anticipating future problems and shenanigans. I think it should be gone. Do I think it's going to happen? No, just like I know that abolishing the police is not going to happen. But I do think it's a very good idea. And perhaps in the process of talking about how fundamentally problematic the Electoral College is for recent reasons, not having to go back 200 years, but for recent reasons, maybe people will rethink of restoring parts of the Voting Rights Act or doing whatever it is they can because this system can't hold. We're going to have major, major issues going forward because there will be a smarter version of Trump that shows up. Oh, for sure, because this man's an idiot, but there are lots of Republicans who are not idiots. Moving forward, because we have to deal, we're going to be dealing with the fallout of this president as problematic, and he's not smart. He hasn't really surrounded himself with smart people all of the time. Every now and again, he's had some sort of sinister geniuses that have been able to just steamroll these Democrats who are just like, we can still work together, braid each other's hair, and have a slumber party. And it's like, what are you thinking? These fools are out for blood. So in D.C., the city once known as the Chocolate City, Mm. we've got (laughs) primarily men, but some women too, traveling from far and wide. It's not like D.C. has a robust white nationalist population in Southeast. Have you seen Congress? We've seen Congress. It's still a majority Black city, barely hanging on. But I mean, these are people that traveled from Indiana. They traveled from bar places in Pennsylvania and Kentucky and New York and New England. And they wanted to stop the steal. They wanted to show their support for President Trump. The head of the Proud Boys tweeted that, ooh, surprise meeting. And everyone's like, you don't get a surprise meeting to the White House. That takes weeks to all of a sudden be able to roll into the White House, East Wing or West Wing. To me, Jason, what was so enraging in a lot of ways is the way that they damaged, people said they ripped off Black Lives Matter flags. No, I saw photos and video of them burning Black Lives Matter signs Mm -hmm. that they stole off of Black churches. And white churches. So this is explicitly targeted Black churches and not a peep from the evangelical, not a whisper from the religious crowd that supposedly purports the sanctity of life, but is quiet when we put two men to death in one week. The hypocrisy is so stale. It's not even surprising anymore. Yeah. But I do worry, honestly, Jason, between now and January 20th, because the president is meeting with these people. The president is getting them messaging. The president is essentially saying, like, I'm turning a blind eye. And we know that many of these people are in law enforcement and corrections and positions of power during their day job, mobilized in a way. And they watch shows that we don't watch and they talk on social media networks that we don't get invited to. That does worry me and concern me. So what are your thoughts? So I go back to the chant from the 1960s, the cops and the clan go hand in hand. People were saying that 70 years ago to talk about the relationship between white national suppressive forces and law enforcement to the degree that you can make those distinctions. Mm-hmm. This does not surprise me. It's going to increase. And I tweeted about this. Thank goodness, God bless soon to be Vice President Senator Kamala Harris, who said, and I think probably one of the best speeches I ever heard her give at uh, Netroots Nation, I think it was in 2018 or mm-hmm. 2019, where she said, racism is a national security issue. When we talk about other countries, we talk about countries in Africa, when we talk about countries in Eastern Europe, and we talk about ethnic conflict and how ethnic conflict prevents us. That's what's happening here. And it's become ethnic conflict because now the non-white population is big enough that it can be a fight. It wasn't ethnic conflict when white people were 83% of the American population because they didn't really have to worry about anything. But now that we're facing an America where the majority of people under the age of now 18 are not white and are determining their identities and are asking to be able to participate fully in our democracy and fully in our economy and fully 
especially in our culture, these people are going to be angry. It will get worse as we head towards the inauguration. But here's the other part when I look at groups like the Proud Boys. I will be very interested to see what Joe Biden does. And I swear he better not pick Doug Jones as attorney general. Uh, because we need, uh, we need somebody who is in part of the Department of Justice who is going to view the Proud Boys like a domestic terrorist organization. Because that's what they are. The fact that they wear khaki and put on Axe body spray doesn't mean that they're not terrorists. The fact that they look like neighbors and that they went to state you doesn't mean that they're not terrorists, that they're not advocating. I keep saying this all the time. When people talk, you can't say that people have to leave this country who aren't real Americans without also encouraging violence. Because we ain't leaving unless you put a gun to our head. Right. It's terrorism. So I think this brings us to our last point, which is, and I keep saying this, far too many white Americans don't understand white America. And they don't understand the capacity of white America and what they have done and what they're willing to do. Right. And I think that that's so evident when we're dealing with the COVID crisis, mm -hmm. how state governments and state legislatures across the nation can have certain communities just die. We're seeing with Black folks, uh, we're seeing with Latin folks, we're seeing with Native folks, right, especially in the Midwest and Sunbelt states. And, you know, Jason, you had a really powerful tweet where you likened these numbers to what we saw during a war in five years. I think that there's hope on the horizon. I think it was a very interesting photo that those of us who were in New York saw a vaccine being administered to a Black ICU worker by a Caribbean nurse. If anybody lives in New York, that is no surprise that you're a nurse. Did they have any other kind in New York? I thought by law you had to be a right, Caribbean right. nurse. Nannies and nurses. Right. They must be Caribbean. Because <laughs> yeah. I was like, if aliens ever came to the Upper West Side, they would be like, what's all these Black women doing with white babies? They're like, so clearly your Jamaican population are all your medical doctors, right? <laughs> right. Like, that's what they would think, yes. But so we had this sort of the day of the Black woman, a vaccine created by a Black woman being administered by a Black woman to a Black woman who is literally in her job helping to save other people. But I do worry that because we have so many people, we have sort of different buckets, right? Yeah. You've got the people who are like anti-maskers, anti-social distance. It is a democratic hoax. I refuse to believe in it. These numbers aren't real. Right. So I don't have to do anything. We're going to go to parties. We're going to eat indoors. Those people are in Staten Island. So we can't even say that they're just the Southerners or yeah. miscellaneous folks. They are in Northern cities too. Then you have the people who, you know, I see it in sports. Hey guy, put that mask over your nose. And also when you need to say something and yell at a player, I need you to not take off the mask. I yes. need you to put and on put all the mask. your dirty breath in their face. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're yelling, that's not the time to take off the mask. So then we have so the bucket of people who think they're doing the right thing, but they're part of the problem. And then you have other folks who are just like, well, you know, my pod is only, and then they list. 12 people. I know those people. I'm doing the right thing. I only went out with Jason and so-and-so and so-and-so on Thursday. And then I went out with you and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And I'm like, that's too much. I also am curious, Jason, about the other side of this. Once we all figure out the vaccine and mm. let's just say by 2023, 2024, COVID is behind us because that's yeah. realistically the timeline. How do we have a collective mourning as a nation? All those funerals that people couldn't go to. How do we move forward with this traumatic, it's like a post-Pearl Harbor, it's a post-World War II. How do we do that. There's a great segment that I did when I was guest hosting on the week on MSNBC last Saturday night, and there was a guy who has a Twitter handle. I was there. <laughs> Dr. Greer was there. And you did a great job, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. There's a guy, his name is Alex, but he has a wonderful Twitter handle called Faces of COVID. He does these amazing memorials to, he's done 35,000 people who have passed away from COVID. I asked him, like, how's his self-care? Really, really, really beautiful. If there are walls to Vietnam veterans, if there are walls to World War II veterans, like I said, 
We will have lost more people to COVID in a year. If we go from March of 2020 to March of 21, we will have lost more people to COVID in one year than we lost to the Nazis in five years of World War II. Five years. Due to grotesque incompetence. Due to gross incompetence, though, Jason. Look at Australia. They are partying. They are back in the saddle. They are literally throwing themselves the pizza party that we used to be able to get in fourth grade when you did everything right. Yeah, and still having sort of White House Christmas parties and everything else like that. What concerns me, Dr. Greer, going forward, and we will have other conversations, we've had conversations about people being apprehensive about getting the vaccine and everything else like that. Here's the thing. I interviewed somebody about this last week. This is preliminary. The vaccine itself, I talked to the former head of the CDC. She's like, look, it's not a cure-all. You're still going to have to social distance. You're still going to have to be careful who you interact with. You're still going to have to take two doses. The vaccine basically is just going to make it harder for you to get sick. And I want to say this to anybody who's apprehensive out there, and I put myself in this category, but like I said, hey, I'd take this in the second round. They're going to have limited doses. Remember, your chances of being made sick and killed by the vaccine are still less than your chances of getting sick and dying from the actual COVID coronavirus. That's what you're looking at. So unless you think you can roll the die and survive the next two years in this country and not catch it, and I say this as somebody whose pod got exposed to COVID a week and a half ago, yeah, you might want to think about taking this vaccine. Well, that being said, I really do hope all of our listeners are safe and sane during this moment because we're in for a collective moment together for quite some time. So as always, thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. And I want the compliments to me to podcast at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Caduce. Oh.